Psalm 146. I'm going to read the whole brief chapter. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not trust in princes, in mortal men, in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs. He returns to the earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, and he thwarts the way of the wicked. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it is a wonderful and a joyful meditation when we consider your greatness and how you care for your people throughout the earth, Lord. Only you are sovereign. Only you have the power to solve the most difficult problems, problems that we as men brought on ourselves when we turned against you. Father, you deliver even from those, the greatest problems, the problems that are eternal. And you give life and you give it only in your son, Jesus. Father, I pray as Tom speaks to us today that our faith in you and in your goodness and in your wisdom and in your power and our confidence would grow in you for the glory of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The next two Sundays, Bob Deffenbaugh is going to be preaching. And I'm very much looking forward to that. I always do. Because that's going to happen, I decided instead of launching back into Ephesians this morning that we do something a little different. My title for this morning's message is a post-election course correction. Now, some might not think that a course correction is needed. Uh, I have to tell you that based on some of the things that I've seen Posted online by my fellow saints and some of the things that I've heard in conversations with my fellow saints, I think, uh, I think a little nudge back in the right direction is, uh, is both needed and valuable. Uh, course correction isn't always a 180 degree turn. It's generally just a nudge back on track. And beloved, our focus has to be at all times on, on the fact that our trust is in God and not in men. And that is exactly what this psalm is about. This is an amazing psalm. This is uh, the first of five psalms that finish out the book of Psalms. Psalms 146 to 150 have something very much in common in the, the five of them. First, they're all praise psalms, but each of them begins and ends with uh, one single Hebrew word. And that word is actually, it's a contraction of two words. The first is a command in the second person plural. And the command is, you all praise. And the second part of the word is a an abbreviated version of the covenant name that God gave to Moses at Mount Sinai in Exodus 3. The name Yahweh, which means I am. 
and the abbreviated version is Yah. And the word, you've heard it many, many times, the word that starts and ends each of these five psalms is the word Hallelujah. You all praise Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true God. Okay. This psalm in particular includes not only that corporate call to praise, it also includes a personal call to, to praise. The psalmist says to himself, Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. He not only calls himself to praise, he resolves that he will praise God until his last breath on this earth. Now, when I was a a baby Christian, I wasn't a baby, I was a baby Christian. I was 18 years old and I had had a, a dear friend who got saved just about the same time I did. His name was Mike. And uh, that was the Jesus movement time. And we tended every now and then to just kind of spew out the words, praise the Lord. And any time we'd do that without context, Mike would immediately say, okay, for what? And, and it would always make us kind of stop and, and, you know, ponder and then have something to say. See, Mike, <laughs> Mike understood something almost innately that's critically important, and that is that A call to praise is always accompanied by cause to praise. Cause to praise. When I was, uh, in fact, something that we did when I was in Campus Crusade for Christ just a a year after that uh, would have driven Mike completely crazy. We had this song that we would sing and we would divide the group up into three parts. And this one would be the hallelujah, and this one would be the yah, and this would be the praise the Lord. And they'd all start seated, and then as we went through this song, they would pop up for each part. Hallelujah, 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 praise ye the Lord. And then the chorus was really great. It was praise ye the Lord, hallelujah. And we do it faster and faster. It was like group whack-a-mole. And that was really fun. But you know what it wasn't? It wasn't praising the Lord. It was calling each other to praise the Lord, but it wasn't praising the Lord because the praise of our, of our amazing God always prays back to Him who He is and what He has done. And that's what the psalmist does here. The great cause to praise that the psalmist sets before us in this psalm is that the trust that we place in Yahweh produces great blessedness for us. It brings us great blessedness. It's not the trust that blesses, it's, it's the one we trust who blesses. And he establishes this cause to praise by setting up a contrast. He, he contrasts two things. First, he contrasts what you get when you trust in men He starts with that and then he tells us what you get when you trust in God. And by looking at the difference between those two, you end up with some very powerful cause to praise. To start with, in verses 3 and 4, he tells us why we should not trust in men. He tells us what we get if we do. First, he says, do not trust in princes, in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. 
Now, when you and I look at the word princes, we usually think of the firstborn son of a king who's in line to be, or a queen, who's in line to be the next king. But that word in the Old Testament can apply to anybody in a position of authority and power over others. It could apply to a king. It could apply to the king's son. It could apply to a member of his court or a government official. In our culture, that same word would be appropriately applied to a president or to a congressman, or to a Supreme Court justice. And what the psalmist says is, do not trust in those men who have power on earth, for they are just mortals. He says, do not trust in princes in in a son of man, not the son of man, that's Jesus. Do not trust in princes in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. And that's the first of two reasons then that he actually gives us not to put our trust in mortal men. The first is, in them there is no salvation. And the second, which I'm going to talk about first, (laughs) is that their plans don't last very long. The plans of mortal men don't last very long. He says in verse 4 of this Son of man, his spirit departs, he returns to the earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. (laughs) Now, let me ask you a question. In the ancient Near East, when this was written, how did transitions between kings generally take place? What caused those transitions to occur? Somebody died. The king died. In fact, if you look in 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, you have to look pretty hard to find the very rare exceptions to the, the, the cycle because it's always, and the king died and slept with his fathers and his son became king in his place. Now sometimes it was a little more violent than that, right? Sometimes one of the, late, the later born sons murdered the firstborn son so he could step in as king. Sometimes, you know, it might have been a cousin who wiped out all of the sons of the king, so that he could be king. Kind of makes you glad we get to have elections. But the reality in the ancient Near East was that a transition of power, especially at the high levels, generally occurred because somebody died. And so I say that, I point that out, because the real issue here is not that somebody died, it's that the king or the ruler ceased to have influence because... His reign ended. His rule ended. Now, in our cultural context, that usually happens when elections happen. Somebody's rule ends and somebody else's starts. And I want to, I want to make this clear. I realize, I'm quite aware that in our, in our context, uh, what a president, for instance, does might, uh, might endure for quite some time after he's out of office especially when it comes to a Supreme Court appointment. Um, Because with Supreme Court appointees, that usually goes back to the ancient Near East pattern, right? They are in authority until they die. But they die. They eventually no longer have power and authority over others. And that is the point. That's why it is foolish to put your trust in mortal men. 
But the most compelling reason by far not to trust in mortal men is the first one that the psalmist gives us, and that is there is no salvation in men. And why is that? It's because the word sovereign actually only applies to one being ever, and that's God. See, men and women who are in positions of authority on earth are instruments. They're not the source of sovereignty or power or authority or blessedness for the people over whom they have authority. The source is always and only Yahweh. And that's why our praise goes to Him. That's why our trust goes to Him and to Him alone. Okay, so if human rulers, if they, uh, if their plans and their intentions and their policies and their practices don't last very long, and if they actually can't provide real salvation, then, then what do you get when you trust in men? Yeah, I found an audio file that explains it. Okay. Those are loud crickets. Amen. Amen to those crickets. <laughs> okay, now let's get down to the heart of the matter. What do you get when you trust in Yahweh? In the one true God. Well, let's look at verses 7 through 9 for a moment, and we'll skip down to there, and then we'll come back. In verses 7 through 9, the psalmist says that Yahweh, the God of, of Jacob, executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. Yahweh sets the prisoners free. Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. Yahweh raises up those who are bowed down. Yahweh loves the righteous. Yahweh protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow. He thwarts the way of the wicked. And the reason I keep saying the name Yahweh is because every time, if you've got a Bible that has capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in the Old Testament, that's always a way of rendering the covenant name of God, which is Yahweh. Okay? So when, when he says, Hallelujah, now he proceeds to continue to refer to that God, to that one and only true God, and he tells us what he does. And this is a great list. This is not an all-inclusive list, but it's a really great list. Uh, it tells us that God is a compassionate God, that He is involved in the lives of people. It tells us that God cares about our life under the, here under the curse. And that if we trust in Him, He compassionately cares for us. There are two things that the psalmist says we get when we trust in God. And those two things in verse 5 are help and hope. He says, How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in, literally, whose hope is upon Yahweh his God. Now, those two words, help and hope, are are very, very uh, significant. And it's very significant that he included both in that one verse. Because help has to do with God's compassionate care for us here and now. And hope has to do with God's perfect 
blessings later. One of the best ways I know to kind of uh, explain the difference is to go back and look at how Jesus lovingly and freely gave both help and hope. When Jesus was here, he did all of these things that we see in this psalm. He was a compassionate provider for all who came to him. And he said, whoever comes to me, I will in no way cast out. And he did, he did amazing things. He provided all kinds of help. And that help was beyond anything that people had ever seen before. Things like giving sight to the blind, raising a man who had been dead for four days from the grave, casting out demons to free those who had been in bondage to those demons for, for years, healing all manner of illnesses. Jesus was the greatest help to mankind that man had ever seen. And I'll point out briefly that the help that God provides that is, that is wrapped up in His character that is talked about here is the help that we as His agents are to demonstrate in this world. But it's really, really important that we understand the distinction between help and hope. Because the whole time that Jesus was providing this miraculous, divinely enabled help, He was doing so in order to identify Himself as the one who alone would give to mankind eternal hope. The help was to point to the hope. It was to create a longing in the hearts of men for the hope. And the passage that James brought up this morning in the worship goes exactly to that distinction. Because at the beginning of John chapter 6, Jesus took five loaves of bread and two fish and He fed roughly 20,000 people. The 5,000 was just the men. And then, and then Jesus strolled across this huge lake on foot, met the disciples in the middle, and after he had been on the other side for quite some time, the people that he had fed that morning, they had worked their way around the lake to the north side where he was, and they found him again. And you know what they wanted? They wanted another meal. They wanted more help. And what did Jesus not do at that point? He didn't feed them with earthly food. He didn't feed them. What kind of helper doesn't feed you when you're hungry if he's got the ability to do so? The helper who wants to point you to hope. Okay? And so what did Jesus do? He scolded them for for caring only about the help. And he said, He said, I am the true bread that comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. He said, my blood is true drink. My blood gives you eternal life. And he said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you will not, you do not have life in yourselves. And they said, whoa, okay, time to leave. Right? And the overwhelming majority of that huge crowd just bailed at that point. And what's amazingly instructive is what happened then because then Jesus turned to the 12 disciples and He he said, 
You don't want to leave also, do you? And Peter said, to whom would we go, Lord? You have words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, we all know that Peter had a tendency to get confused at times. But at that moment, God had given him crystal clarity about the the most marvelous truth that men will ever know. And that is that Jesus, the Son of God, came not just to give help. He came to give eternal hope to mankind. See, Jesus, when He came the first time, He didn't come to end the curse. He came to save the cursed. And so, when He provided help, it was to point to hope. Now, did the psalmist understand all that when he wrote this psalm? Of course of course not. But here's what the psalmist did understand. He understood that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not only our help, He is our hope for all eternity. He is our hope to all generations forever. So, he's saying, here's what you get when you trust the one true God. You get compassionate care right now and you get perfect salvation forever. Okay, when... When do you get all this? Well, the help you get now and the hope you get later. And and guys, you can't confuse those two. Romans 8, Paul says, in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one hope for what he sees? If we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. Now, do you have to eagerly wait for something you already have? No. The hope of eternal life, the hope of of dwelling forever in the kingdom of God with sin and the curse having been put away forever, guys, that's all future. And we have to wait for it. But But in the waiting, the knowing, the knowing of that hope is the anchor of our souls sustains us every single day of our lives. It empowers every single day of our lives. Because we know how this all ends. And it ends it ends with us dwelling with God forever. Men don't save. Men can't save. Men are instruments. Beloved, Jesus saves. And He's coming soon. And when He does come soon, He won't he won't have to heal illness anymore because illness will be done away with. He won't have to give sight to the blind because there won't be any blindness. He won't have to deliver men from bondage to demons because He will have banished every demon to the pit of fire and brimstone forever. He won't have to... He won't have to thwart the way of the wicked because He will judge the wicked who have rejected Him, and they will be completely banished from His presence and from His power forever. And and if you're here this morning and your view of God is that He is someone who helps people and you've never reckoned with that hope part, 
with eternal life, if you've never reckoned with the fact that you deserve that judgment, that eternal judgment, as all of us do, that we come into this life condemned under the sin of Adam and then we prove it by our actions from before we can even speak our first word. And God sent His one and only Son, the perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfect man and perfect God down from heaven to live a perfect life and to a sinless life and to die on a cross in our place so that the eternal debt of our sin would be, would be paid. And it is only, it is only when you abandon all trust in yourself to ever be good enough for God and you trust only in the one who is perfect man and perfect God, His righteousness covers you. Your sin is paid for by Him and His righteousness covers you. And when God looks at you, He sees the righteousness of His Son from then on. If you're here this morning and you have not embraced that hope, that glorious promise, may today be the day that you move from help to hope. Men don't save. Jesus saves. Men don't save save themselves. Jesus saves. All right, now how do we know that uh, our trust in God won't disappoint? How do we know He can actually pull off these promises? The psalmist gives us three compelling proofs. First, verse 6, he says, this is the God who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. You ever had a human ruler who could claim that? See, the power, the sovereignty, the power, and the authority of God are the sovereignty, power, and authority of the one who created everything that has ever existed with nothing more than a spoken word. And that means that, that his ability to bless when he intends to bless is absolute. It's unchallenged. It's untouched by anything in His creation. And so, when we place our trust in Yahweh, we know it's well placed. We will not be disappointed. The second thing, the second truth about God that uh, that the psalmist sets before us here is in the phrase, verse 6, He keeps faith forever. The word keeps is the, it's a word that occurs many times in both testaments. There's a, there's a Greek equivalent to this word. And it means to guard or keep watch over. It doesn't mean to just do something. It means to protect it and to, to keep it safe. And, and so he says that God keeps faith forever. And the word faith, some of you might see it in your margin, but the word for faith here is actually the Hebrew word for truth. If you know anyone whose name is Emmet, a man whose name is Emmet, that's that Hebrew word. Okay? Truth. And here's a fascinating thing about the word truth when it is applied to God, when it's presented as an attribute of God in the Bible. It doesn't just mean that which corresponds to reality. It means that which, that which remains over time unchanged. Truth, 
as it refers to God. You can look it up. You don't have to know Hebrew. You can go to an online lexicon that's got the connections back to the original words. And you can look at this word and you'll see. The, the synonyms for this word are things like reliability, trustworthiness, steadfastness, continuity. You ever think of truth that way? That's the truth that is true of God is that, see, and when you put this verse together, it's beautiful. <laughs> it means he guards the sureness of his promises. He guards the sureness, the certainty, the continuation of his blessedness so that nothing can take it away from you. It means his blessings on toward those who trust him. <laughs> they are as certain, they are as powerful, and they are as everlasting as he is. Because truth is in him. Those are the first two ways we know our God will not disappoint when we trust in Him. And the third, the final one is God reigns forever. Verse 10, Yahweh will reign forever. Thy God, O Zion, to all generations. Hallelujah. When men make promises and when men make plans, those plans are short-lived. And in the grand scheme of things, they're really short-lived. So if you stake your well-being on that, you're going to be disappointed. Even more critically, those who reign on earth are just instruments. They're just delegates. God reigns forever. And there are two things I want you to recognize about that declaration in verse 10. The first is, he will reign forever, that means that He reigns. right? He, he's not an absentee God. He didn't wind things up at the beginning of creation and let them run their course. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, is intimately involved in the ways of His people and of all of His creation all the time. And His reign will be forever. So not only does He have the power and the authority and the sovereignty to rule over his creation, but he does rule over his creation. We, we in our young adults uh, Bible discussion the other night, we were in uh, Daniel chapter two, and it really went to this exact point. You guys kind of, I think most of you know the story, but Daniel and his three friends, Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah, they were they were three Jewish boys. They were just boys. And they had been taken away into captivity to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar, the exceedingly powerful king, probably the most powerful king in existence at that time, uh, had a dream. And the dream troubled Nebuchadnezzar greatly. And so he said, okay, round up all of the wise men in the land and tell them if they can't tell me both the dream, the content of the dream and its interpretation, I'll execute them. Wouldn't you love to work for a guy like that? Well, Daniel and his three friends were known as wise men. Their wisdom came from God, but they were known as wise men, so they were in that group, and they were slated. They were on the schedule to be executed. God came to Daniel in a vision, and he told him exactly the content of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the meaning. And what was the first thing that Daniel did after receiving that information? 
I can tell you what the first thing was would be that I would do. I would run as fast as I could to wherever the king was, and I would grab his chief servant, and I would say, I can tell him. Okay. You know what the first thing Daniel that was that Daniel did? He ran to the God of the universe, and he fell on his knees, and he praised him. And here's what he said. He said, <laughs> Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to Him. And it is He who changes times and epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the knowers of understanding. Daniel wasn't afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. And that's why he didn't go to him first. Daniel knew who was worthy of his fear. The one and only God. And that God had made Daniel and his three friends the object of his eternal affection and blessing. And that's what he does for those who trust in him. And, and when he does, there is no, there is no man who can ever take that away from you. There is no woman. There is no authority. There is no institution. There is no power that exists in heaven or on earth who can take that blessedness, that eternal blessedness away from you. This is the truth, beloved, about our God. Our help now and our hope for eternity isn't merely God's promise. Our Help and our hope is the promise maker. Proverbs 21.1 says, The heart of a king is like channels of water in the hands of Yahweh. So, and it says, He directs it however He wishes. If that being true, where must our trust land? It has to land on the one who is sovereign over the hearts of human rulers. It it makes no sense at all for us to be anxious about the outcome of an election. No sense at all. It makes no sense at all for us to fight with one another in the body of Christ about the right way to vote. Because all of that proceeds from fear that is absolutely misplaced. I am not saying don't vote. I've voted in every election since I was 18 years old. Not just the the big ones, but the midterms and as many of the subordinate ones that I could vote in. But guys, my trust is not in the men who win those elections. And it never will be. And yours must not be either. One of the most devastatingly distressing things that I have seen in the last several years is believers in the living God fighting with other believers in the living God about elections and officials. I understand that we stand for that which is true and moral and right. I'm, I'm all in. Obviously, that's we're here to represent Christ. But guys, it does not represent Christ when we bite and devour each other over things that have nothing to do with our well-being and that cannot undo, cannot undo the plans of the living God. 
Our help now and our hope in eternity isn't even just the promise. It is the promise maker. Jeremiah 17.7 says, How blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Psalm 40, verse 4, How blessed is the man who has made Yahweh his trust, and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. In other words, to men. But he has made Yahweh his trust. Do you ever think of it in those terms? It's not just that we trust the promise of God. It's that God is our trust. It's personal. It's personal. It's about Him. Isn't it marvelous that true religion that lives out the character of God is not a system of beliefs in some kind of isolation. It is a person. It's union with the living God through Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. It's personal. And so the psalmist says, how blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is upon Yahweh, his God. I'm going to wrap up, and I, and I might disappoint some of you because as I, as I mentioned earlier, these there's some verses here about the things that God does on earth, and a lot of people preach this as a mission statement. That we who are the agents of God, this psalm tells us what we need to be doing. And I don't disagree with the fact that these are things we should be doing, but I absolutely disagree that this psalm is a mission statement. Beloved, this psalm is a call to praise. This psalm is a call to you and me to praise the God who reigns with every breath that we have until we breathe our last on this earth. It's, it's a call for us to abandon, to abandon every molecule of trust in human beings and to recognize that our well-being can never, will never, has never come from anything that any man, woman, or child has ever done. The one and only source of well-being who has ever existed. The owner of all blessing and of all curse. Of all well-being and of all judgment. The source of everything that we will ever need is the living God. And so, He is our trust. And so, finally... <laughs> We get to praise God like the psalmist praises God. We get to declare to each other and to our own souls. And this will be our closing prayer. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. You all. Praise Yahweh. In Jesus' precious name we praise. Amen.